Hi, and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast. And uh, I'm hoping that along with my guest and uh, media colleague, uh, Gareth Shaw, that uh, we can actually have a bit of fun this afternoon or whilst you're listening, whatever time it might be, um, talking about putting a short game both on the PGA Tour and in some of the experiences that I've had uh, over the years. So uh, welcome, Gareth. I hope you're well. I hope you've had a great weekend, mate. Afternoon, Andy. Yeah, been a lovely weekend. Sun's been shining. Managed to get out and yeah, re- really good. some good golf on the TV to watch as well. It felt like a major this weekend. It really did. Did have uh, very much a ring to that, didn't it? It's, um, yeah, it's a little bit. I, I kind of remember the the U.S. Open sort of falls on the weekend of my wedding anniversary. I kind of throw that one in there, but um, you, you know, sort of middle of June. Um, you know, nice and warm. You know, and then you get some you know, sort of rough around the greens and nice firm fairways and very tight pin locations and the Memorial Tournament threw in the perfect mix of that. So, yeah, I mean, and, and of course, it was also the second week that Muirfield Village had hosted a tournament, first time since 1957, if I recall. And, and well, not that I was around in 1957, of course, but, um, yeah, it was... <laughs> uh, it was great to see how a course can change so significantly, um, you know, from one week to the next. And it, it, I know that you can do that, you know, having hosted tournaments, uh, you know, at a venue that, you know, where we did have tournaments, we could literally turn the course around um, almost overnight. Um, although I've got to be perfectly honest with you, given what I was seeing at the very end of the coverage where, you know, the sixth green was being chopped up, ready to be, you know, completely rebuilt. Uh, whilst the players were still on the course, I thought it was quite incredible because I've seen that before now, um, you know, personally. And, you know, I think that just shows you that uh, Mr. Nicholas is not prepared to let a golf course just sit there and, you know, nicely mature. He's going to improve the golf course as much as he can. I really like the term he said as well when, you know, I'm not making the course more difficult. I'm improving the course with the changes. So, you know, it's a really good way to uh, to view things. Um, you know, and, uh, and what just very quickly, Arthur, what that, you know that that venue. I mean, you know, we've had a tournament week before. Course played great. You know, pretty good scoring. Um, and then you know this week, you know, t- all tightened up a bit. So, you know, what was your thoughts? I think, as as you said, I think it's great that they can do that and that quick turnaround, and also that it really did change the scoring, and I think it changed the focus of the players. I saw a stat from Ryan Palmer that he missed the cut the week before, mm. and he he made a few swing changes. He put an old faithful putter in the bag, and he was up there in contention. Yeah, um, and I think from from our perspective. It's has given us some great content to talk about on today's podcast, oh, ultimately. Yeah, you know, we've had a couple of weeks of very interesting uh, viewing from a certain Mr. Uh, Phil Nicholson. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it is, in, it's completely intriguing to see what some of the guys will do. Uh, and of course, you know, I have been at the cutting edge, you know, mm-hmm. some degree and, you know, seen what players are prepared to do and what they're prepared to go for. And I think, you know, certainly... You know, we saw some interesting shots and, you know, practice methods and, and even implementations in putting strokes. But, uh, you know, I just I do love the way that, you know, we get plenty of material out of these 
these uh, events. And, uh, you know, looking forward to discussing that and more today. So uh, mm. got a list of questions for me. Um, yeah, yeah, raring to go today. So, go ahead. So I, I think you touched on it a little bit there. And I think what not a lot many people will know around your career that you haven't always been based in the UK. You've been global. And I really wanted to touch that on that today of your experiences coaching abroad and being abroad. Mm. But to start, really, how did that come about? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was extremely fortunate that um, I'd, I'd not long qualified and, you know, I got my first head pro position uh, in 1994 and, you know, my my girlfriend at the time said you know do you fancy going to the caribbean for you know sort of a pre-christmas holiday and you know i was all up for that who wouldn't be so you know we we decided to go to barbados and you know i knew a good friend of mine was out there um at, who was the head pro at sandy lane um stefan soroka and stefan and i used to work together so we'd stayed in touch and um he, you know i saw him pretty much every time he came back in the summer and he'd been there a few years at that point in time so you know i touched base with him and said you know is there any chance of getting a game of golf while i'm out there and you know we were only there sort of 10 or 12 days if i recall but um i didn't actually play to be fair it was just uh, i had a little wander around the course spent a couple of hours with steph and catching up on old times and the like but um you know i, I fell in love with the caribbean at that point in time and you know not sort of realizing it i did apply for a couple of jobs didn't you know get them um but some very good friends of mine who owned a company called the golf consultancy uh mark jones and andrew clark um they used to work at the pga i'd known them from the time when i was working at the belfry and i knew they got consultancies around the world and you know i just picked up the phone one day i was a little um I wouldn't say disenchanted, but, you know, I was looking for that next step. You know, I was qualified. I wanted to do something that was going to make a difference. You know, I was reaching that sort of mid-20s, sort of getting a bit of itchy feet. And I just picked up the phone and spoke to Mark, I think, if I remember rightly, to start with. And then, you know, sat down with Mark and Andrew. And, you know, if we went up. They'd built the um, what's now Pete Cowan's Academy, uh, Rotherham, and, um, you know, invited me up there to go and have a look at it. I said, we've got some projects in the Caribbean. Would you be interested in coming out and consulting with them? Well, you know, crikey, I'll snap my hands off there. You know, mm -hmm. Nuda, Jamaica, you know, I mean, it, it was it was literally, you know, stuff of dreams. But, you know, at the same token, then we had a conversation. And, you know, on the day that they were opening um, the, the academy up at uh, Rotherham and, you know, I think the guys must have seen something in me that, you know, obviously is having somebody that you know and, and, and can trust uh, and believe has a good work ethic for what you do, you know, for your own business, um, you know, offered me a position that was coming up in, uh, potentially coming up, um, per se, in Jamaica. And albeit it took a little, little while to actually get over there um, and, you know, get the, get the job started, you know, Jamaica's sort of strap line would be soon come um you know it, it wasn't soon coming Maybe mm -hmm. months i think from the initial conversations to me actually getting out there and then you know 1997 you know early part of january the snow on the ground here in the uk i get my tickets and you know chuck everything that i've got all my worldly possessions and bang them on a plane and you know 
you know, out with a handful of people, the flight was pretty empty. We had the whole plane, whole plane to myself virtually. It was, um, yeah, just got out there and you know dug deep, and I didn't know a soul. I didn't know a single person. Just went out to Jamaica, into Kingston to work at the Caymanus Golf Club, um, just outside of Kingston. Uh, phenomenal venue, incredible golf course, and it, you know it, it. It for me, you know, was a bit of a baptism of fire. I don't, don't mind admitting that. I, you know, Jamaica's a great place, but at the same time, we all know that you know it's it, it, it is a little bit dangerous um, to say the least. And you know, you have to be a little street smart. And you know, I mean, I hadn't really sort of experienced some of the things that I experienced, but. Um, before and you know i just concentrated on work it was as simple as that you know it was easy just go go to work come back to the hotel where i was staying which was great because you know i happened to be staying where british airways had their um crew and you know sort of three crews a week came in so it was like having your best friends turn up every other day um and of course one of those best friends happened to turn up which i didn't know about at the time um and is now my wife. So, um, you know, but we, you know, because we met, uh, we'd, we'd actually met 20 years earlier, you know, sitting next to each other at junior school and then happened to bump into each other in the bar in in the hotel where I was staying. So, you know, and, and our friendship's been, you know, a little sort of, well, friendship's always been there, but our kind of time where we've known each other on and off, we've not really seen a huge amount of each other until a couple of years ago. And, you know, of course, the rest is history because we've been married 12 months now. And, uh, you know, yeah, we've um, so, yeah, I've got a lot to thank um, Jamaica for and, and Andrew and Mark, of course. But uh, and of course, you know, I mean, I got married before I got married to Becky and I had my own. But, um, yeah, it, you know, back to the golf side of things. Caymanus was an incredible golf course, great facility. Um, a members facility, you know, I was working for the government. They owned the golf course itself or the operation of the golf course through the clubhouse. They'd invested in, you know, the refurbishing the original clubhouse that was there, which had gone to, well, it just became too too expensive to manage. So they took that back on, plowed a lot of money into, go, into golf. And, you know, the golf consultancy's job was, you know, to to help them with the marketing and the development of, of um, that particular property uh, in Jamaica. And it was my job to provide the professional services of that, which was obviously golf coaching and, uh, you know, sort of the day-to-day -day management. So although, you know, my position was head professional, you know, and there's a lot of that was, you know, a director of a golf position as well. And, um, you know, I was there for around about, four or five months, I was uh, appointed the national coach, um, which was, you know, a tremendous privilege and, you know, great opportunity to work with the island's best players. We traveled to the Caribbean Amateur Championships and, um, you know, Grand Cayman. So again, I got to travel a little bit more and, you know, there was lots of opportunities that came up by being there. And, you know, then one afternoon I get a phone call from, the director of operations of Sandals Resorts, and he asked me if I knew anybody um, from London or from the UK that would consider, you know, becoming the head professional at their facility um, in, in on the north coast in Algiers. Well, you know, having been there and won the Jamaica Professional Championships at the Sandals 
resort, you know, just decided to have a little bit of weekend's golf and, you know, beat the island's best players and, you know, mm-hmm. the national players that come over as well. And, you know, I had the you know, incredible sort of weekend, really, winning the playoff. And, you know, it was just like, I, I think I'd made a little bit of an impression, um, you know, the right kind of impression, but as well at the same time, you know, as national coach. So, um, you, you know, the offer wasn't direct to me because that's not kind of how it works um you know the position was available and i had to apply for it but you know recognizing the opportunity was right in front of me as much as they would have employed somebody else if i'd have recommended them you know i took the opportunity to go and work for sandals up on the north coast and you know i wouldn't say necessarily it was an easier life it wasn't at all it was just as hard work in fact possibly harder you know 50 weeks of the year six days a week um, pretty much all the hours of, of daylight, um, you know, during the winter, um, you know, and some, um, you know, worked really, really hard at, you know, coaching, you know, looking after hotel guests, looking after the course and design, albeit we had um, the, the manager, the course manager was um, Dave Moyer, who's, you know, a really good guy, you know, gave me, you know, a lot of flexibility to be able to do the role I needed to do for, the resort which was ultimately to you know turn a tiny little shop into you know a a very respectable retail outlet you know converted one of the well we converted the restaurant um you know Mm -hmm. laid dormant and made that into a 1600 square foot shop and you know just completely turned the business upside down you know in terms of retailing retailing you know golf products and you know obviously merchandise that was branded with the you know, with the logo and, uh, you know, and just, you know, really gave ourselves the, the best opportunity all round. You know, it's kind of the missing link, really. And although, you know, obviously it sounds like, you know, I was a retailer at that point. I was still a coach first, you know, going out to, to help, you know, Jamaica and Jamaicans play golf better and obviously, you know, resort guests improve their golf. But I was utilising the skills that I'd learned, you know, here, you know, in retail. I was able to, you know, turn my merchandising knowledge and, and retailing skills into, a, you know, a very profitable business. Certainly one that I would have been proud to have banked myself, I can tell you. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it was a license to print money, but, you know, if you got it right and, you know, we did, um, you know, it, it turned into a very viable, you know, proposition. And, you know, it was, it, yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to see how things you know sort of worked elsewhere you know obviously i was stateside so you know got golf channel was becoming you know a a big thing so we had golf channel running 24 7 um on on property and i was fortunate to live on property as well so the great you know sort of lifestyle really that went with you know being head pro at one of the busiest golf well probably the busiest golf course on the island we used to have three or four cruise ships um arrive a day uh Wow. You know, and, and, and then, you know, managing, we didn't have uh, tea times. We couldn't, it wasn't a facility that, that sort of lent itself to that. You're just too busy at the, too, you know, too busy with too small a window to be able to run a, um, you know, a tea time operation first and 10th tea. We literally, we we're very fortunate in the, the fact that we had five very, very close walking you know, proximity start points. And so we had a rolling shotgun start, in effect. It was literally, 
if you turned up, we'll get you on the golf course. So I literally would drive around with one of my assistants, you know, on another buggy radioing each other in saying there is a hole available at, you know, hole number five or hole number six or, you know, hole 10 or 16 or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, we just, we would get the golfer out there. Um, I think it was 98, it was 1998, we actually had uh, 256 green fees on one day. Wow. <laughs> I still have no idea how we did it. And when we looked at the stats at the end of the day, I'm like, how did we do that? You know, the caddies were literally, you had to have a caddy that were mandatory. We literally, you know, thankfully we had all the caddies in, but they were carrying two bags and, you know, buggies. And, you know, it was just incredible. But, and, and better still, we averaged less than four and a half hours for a round. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah, four hours and fifteen minutes was a fair, was a typical working day for us when we were full. And that particular day, everybody was rounding less than four and a half hours. So you can do it. There's no excuses for it. We, you know, I, I would say that we were the quintessential swan. Um, we looked great on the, on the outside, but we were pedaling like mad on the inside and and under under the water. It was. It was quite remarkable operation and, and something that, you know, was a joy to be and a privilege to be part of. Um, and it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about what's expected, excellence being, you know, something that, especially with an American audience, um, you know, who are used to, you know, and I've, I've subsequently traveled to the States while I was there. And, and since I've been back, I, I get out there pretty much every year, I think this year might not happen um you know just because of the situations but you know yeah i get to some great places and you know even if you're going to a place that's charging 30 bucks for a round of golf it's still very presentable there's still a warm welcome there's still a you know a spirit of excellence around the place you know and even if it is a little bit tired or the operation is about to close down as i've been to a few like that you know there's still a pride about the place and you know I, I see no reason why that isn't the minimum standard. And, yeah. you know, and you've seen my facility, you know, I'm constantly striving to not just, uh, you know, keep it clean and tidy and look good and presentable, but to make it better. A little bit, you know, referring back to Jack, you know, Nick, mm. you know, improve. What can you do to improve the golf course? There's no point in making it more difficult, you know, if you're not going to improve it. And for me, it's no point in spending more money on the facility, you know, um, you know, it's it, unless it's going to make it better. And, you know, it has to be a better experience, not just for me to work in, but more importantly for the, um, you know, for my clients to, to have when they come, you know, to, uh, to share, you know, and that, that for me is something I, I think is the biggest takeaway, um, you know, from my working experience in Jamaica, apart from, you know, three kids. <laughs> and, you know, it, so, so there's a, you know, huge amount. And, you know, I think the other thing as well is that, you know, if you get a chance to work overseas and you get a chance to ultimately um, understand diversification a little bit more, uh, understand the challenges that um, different locations will offer, um, you know, learn to live in a different culture. Uh, it's not for everybody, uh, I'll be honest. Um, and I'm not saying that it would be for me now. Um, you know, there were, there were some challenges, 
you know, that I had in Jamaica, which were absolutely fine road with them, you know, sort of lived with them, you know, in my late 20s and early 30s, but I'm not so sure that I'd want to be doing in my early 50s and moving on. So, you know, yeah. I think there's a time for everything. I think, you know, when we are in our, you know, early, mid to late 20s, we can make a move, you know, along that, that you know, magnitude, really. Um and there's, a, there's an element of, you know, I hadn't got a lot to lose. I hadn't got a job that was, you know, the, the job that I was wanted to stay in, you know, albeit you know, it's the golf industry, but I hadn't got a location that was paying, you know, really good money. And, um, you know, I needed something to get my teeth into. I needed to, you know, I said this a number of times while I was there, I needed to find who Andy Gorman was. And, yeah. Um, you know, and ultimately, then what Andy Gorman Golf would would look like going forward. So, I th- you know, I think I managed to achieve that definitely. Um, you know, sure, I made a few mistakes. You know, there was I probably shouldn't have spent as much money uh, after nine o'clock at night. I don't think I need to elaborate. But uh, no, you're fine. Only yeah, we're good. <laughs> um, you know, but it's a case of um, you know there were you know I, I worked really hard I played really hard I had a great time it was five years I was there in total and came back you know ultimately I would have my plan was to go to America it was to go to Florida um, we had got visas in the American embassy um, which were due to be stamped on the 12th of September 2001 that was our registration date and of course, on the ninth, uh, on the eleventh of September, yeah, you know, the, the incident with the twin towers, uh, mm. everything. And you know, I'm not saying that that would have been the right move for me, but it stopped us. We were denied access, um, you know, until further notice. So, you know, it meant that I had to reevaluate my plans to go to Florida and set up my own academy, and you know, sort of go from there so you know there are there are sometimes you know you can make best best laid plans and then all of a sudden you know you've got to you know reevaluate and move you know i had to move back home you know 9-11 affected my my job status and at, at sandals and ultimately you know i became one of the expats that you know was surplus to requirements albeit you know um maybe short-sighted but you know because things did recover reasonably quickly but you know they recovered without me so you know i'm sure i wasn't missed by too many folk um you know but it meant i came back to the uk and you know i had to look at setting myself up with something here and you know i've been self-employed you know sort of employed myself ever since because you know i can't fire myself you know i mean that's (laughs) i'd consider myself to be hard work to, to to work for or with should i say um but you know yeah i can you know i'm, I'm pretty ta- tough taskmaster and i'm t- tough on myself and i think that's what i got really from working overseas it was uh um you know drove me to the point that sometimes actually if you want the job doing you've got to do it yourself you've got to be prepared to do it yourself you've got to show folk that you know you you care as much as you know they do um we had one particular incident at Caymanus where part of the course caught fire. Um, I had never seen anything like, I didn't think the staff were committed. Um, I'll be honest. Um, and I told them mm-hmm. after, you know, that incident, um, they put their lives on the line. 
in that fire. We there was no way we were getting water to it. And they, you know, we got a few few of them got caught in the middle of it and got stuck. And you know, I drove my truck into the midst of it and you know got a few of them out and created a bit of a, a vacuum, which then sort of knocked out some of the fire as well. And you know, meant that you know could get out and get some breaths. And you know, they went back straight back in and put the fire out within a matter of five or ten minutes. Wow. You know, we just you know we sat down on the back of the truck and you know I, I just got somebody to bring a load of drinks down and you know didn't matter whether it was soft drinks or beers you know you could have what you whatever you wanted and whatever you needed it was all you know it was the least I could do was buy a few beers for everybody and you know we just sat there and everybody just looked and you know sort of you know in a in a just a knowing way there wasn't a huge amount of conversation until I you know I started to you know, say to them, I got, you know, my respect for you has just gone through the roof. Um, and I think that's what happens, you know, sometimes you, you know, when you go to a new culture, you don't really understand the culture until you see it firsthand. You never mm -hmm. understand it fully because you're not of that culture. And you only have to embrace as much as you're allowed to embrace, you know, and I, I was very fortunate that the staff allowed me into their culture. Um, and that was at the two facilities I worked at. Um, you know, I, I had difficult times. I had times where I, you know, I knew I wasn't welcome, um, you know, and, and didn't, didn't feel like I was wanted there. But, you know, there were plenty of other times where I was completely embraced. And, you know, I, I would like to think if I went back there now, um, I'd be welcomed with open arms um, and certainly wouldn't be considered to be a threat of any description. So, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's an incredible part of my journey, I suppose. But, you know, when I look back and reminisce over it, you know, it's uh, it, it, everything I am and, you know, and everything I have today, I have to thank to that five-year experience in Jamaica. So, Amazing. What was it like coaching the national team? What was the standard like? Standard was actually very good. I got, um, I got three juniors, albeit they were just on the verges of coming out of juniors. So they were, at, um, they were in university. So they, they went to university, I think, the first year. Or they may have been in their second year. Um, certainly, a couple of them, I think, were in their second year. Um, there's, there was um, Jason Lopez and Jonathan Bloomfield, um, who uh, are pros now. Jonathan's had a pretty successful career in Canada. Um, Jason's, uh, you know, sort of very heavily involved in golf, um, still in Jamaica. Uh, Joel Baxter, who Unfortunately, I met Joel just after he'd had some major surgery. He unfortunately had a couple of tumours um, right next to his, right on, the, on part of his brain, but um, they affected his hearing to the point where he was deaf. So he had to learn how to communicate with me and I had to learn how to communicate with him through some form of sign language, but also he read lips and... He was very good at it, but of course now there's an Englishman in the mix, and you know he had to learn how I did it, um, you know how I spoke, which of course was not easily understood if you had ears, let alone you know um, you know in Joel's situation was using my lips to read uh, what it was that I was saying. We had some laughs. We you know. It, he would question sometimes what what I'd said, and he had such an inquisitive look on his face. It was so funny. Uh, unfortunately, he succumbed to the tumours, 
um, you know, and, and passed away as a very young man. I, I think he passed away just before he was 21 um, while I was there. It was one of the most difficult things. I got very close to Joel um, mm. and his dad, you know, I mean, Mike was a great, great, great guy. He was a member at, the, at uh, Sandals. Um, Joel was just, you know, so much fun. He, he just kind of took it on the chin, really. And, you know, he, he, he struggled and he struggled with a, a sense of pride, which, you know, I can, you know, it's kind of, it, you know, I'm going to just reminiscing now. I've not thought about Joel for a long time. And, you know, to think what he went through, I think some of the things that we go through now, you know, are insignificant compared to what he's suffered as a young man and yeah. what his parents obviously went through. You should never have to bury one of your kids. But, you know, it's ultimately... Um, yeah, he was a great, you know, great golfer. I think he played off about two or three, if I remember rightly. And you know, Jason, Johnny, you know, great players. And Jay, Johnny was off about plus one, plus two. Um, you know, I, I, he would come and spend, you know, days and days and days with me. You know, Johnny would he just could would soak it up. You know, I'd let him crash down in in my apartment. You know, I was I was single, so it didn't matter. He used to come in. You know put his head down for a few days, come up to the North Coast when I'm coaching him up there and just used to spend all day hitting golf balls on the range. Just, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd get a few moments in between what I was doing and pop out, make sure everything was okay. I mean, he was, he was, he was the number one player and, you know, has been number one Jamaican for a number of years now. So, um, you know, yeah, just, just incredible golfers, really. You know, ladies, uh, you know, Maggie Lynn was, you know, number one player. And then uh, Lisa and Jody Munn, you know, great players, you know, sort of category one golfers, if I recall. And, you know, so they were the mainstay of the of the team. And then it went right the way through to seniors golfers, you know, you know, over 60s, the super seniors. You know, we had all of those levels um, and then the juniors as well. I mean, it was just, you know, in incredible mix of talent and uh, across the complete age group. Mm. golfers it was just incredible um you know during the amateur championships i felt like i'd got 16 kids out there even though some of them were <laughs> granddad you know it was just it was absolutely incredible um you know and i can say i was in my late 20s at the time but it was you know the sense of responsibility of of coaching that that team and you know we didn't win it that year you know but i think um you know, I had to relinquish um, because of my responsibilities and roles at, at Sandals, um, you know, to, to a couple of other coaches. And, you know, they they managed to get, you know, the team to a, to another victory, if I can recall, you know, fairly shortly afterwards. So, you know, shortly after I left, which was which was just great. You know, was, we were building blocks, you know, all the way through. You know, it was, it, it was fantastic. With that in mind, kind of moving forward into your own, business and your own kind of um advanced career back into the uk what what things did you take from your time abroad that you brought back with you um the one thing that i wanted to make sure i had in place was a short game facility that you know not so much that i could be proud of or will be i was um you know i needed to i suppose the the biggest issue was control I needed to have control over my destiny, rudder my own ship, albeit sometimes you can't quite do that um, in the way that you would like, but as much as you can. Um, you know, and I, I leased a brand new facility in the south of Birmingham at Beckett's Farm. And 
um, it was on a sublet, so there were restrictions based on you know leases, etc. But I did get an area um, where I could build a ten thousand square foot putting and short game area, uh, or putting green. It was ten thousand square foot, and I got a whole area which, you know, I guess would have been somewhere around about two thirds, you know, three quarters of an acre somewhere in that region that, you know, we manicured and and you know got to be a very playable area uh yeah you know challenges of uh, i used to not even think about it you know you throw a piece of wood you know an old stick down in jamaica and it would root and grow again i mean it's so fertile and of course the temperatures and everything else was right you know but you know we used to rebuild the green and you know sort of kill off on on you know strip and re relay um you know just throw some sprigs of grass down you know on the bermuda grass and you, you play a tournament 10 weeks later uh, <laughs> you know it didn't quite happen quite the same way you know water being a big issue uh, to sort of make sure i was getting water in you know onto the green and keeping it soaked and you know whilst trying to build an academy and grow it and you know then the winter came so we had plenty of water too much water and you know but the, you know we we got it built in and grew it with a good friend of mine um ken harrison who built the original um, Forest of Arden course or courses, um, you know, Stonely Deer Park and a few others in the area. And, you know, so I knew that I could rely on him. And the fellow, actually, I met him while I was in Jamaica. You know, he, he came and, you know, looked at me and he said, I know you, don't I? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, but it's going to sound strange, but I actually recognised your wife <laughs> because hmm. Lynn used to work at the PGA. Um, that's how I, how I knew her from when I was at the Belfry. And, you know, Ken and I sort of kept in touch, you know, he gave me his number. And as soon as I got back, I said, look, you know, I've got a location, you know, or I'm looking for somewhere. Do you know anywhere? You know, and when I found the location, he said, come on, I'll help you build it. So, you know, we toiled over, you know, sort of rubble and, you know, hardcore and pea gravel and sand and top dressing and all the other stuff that went on, you know, and built you know, what I've considered to be a great short game facility, but uh, unfortunately the, the facility wasn't managed well enough to keep the business coming through the door and ultimately it went under and kind of dragged me down, you know, on its way. But, um, you know, I did leave before it went un- under ultimately, but, uh, you know, just one of those tough scenarios to deal with, you know, because, you know, I wasn't in control. Had I've had the full facility, I'd, you know, had have been had have had quite a nice successful business by now because uh you know the retail operation was always good and you know it's it, it, it did do an awful lot of golf balls so you know it's uh, just one of those scenarios obviously excellence is is the one thing for me you know i then went to work with Alison nicholas you know former mm-hmm. us open champion solheim cup player and of course winning captain and you know Alison asked me if i would come in and run her academy with her and you know, that was great. Again, working with somebody who knows, you know, what it's like to be at the cutting edge of the game. Um, you know, obviously Ali was retired at the time, but still a, a wealth of knowledge and, and you know, still incredibly talented individual, you know. And we played a bit of golf. Um, we played actually at um, Sunningdale was the first time we played. And it was at that point then that, you know, we was able to, acknowledge each other's ability to hit the golf ball and get it around the course and you know we've been best friends since so you know that's so again you know 
ultimately, you know, it meant that, albeit you're not there forever, um, you know, the golf facility got sold and, you know, I was ultimately moving to towards Wishaw and, you know, the facility I've got now. So, yeah, it all comes down to it. Uh, you know, it comes back to obviously going out to Jamaica, learning the different cultures and then obviously bringing those bits and pieces back with you and, you know, applying them and improving them and enhancing them all the time. Um, which obviously then is where I'm at with my coaching. You know, I, I've learned an awful lot from some great players and, uh, and, and not so great players who've taught me a lot, you know, as a coach, you know, if it's, it's fine working with a, with a great player, because actually you start, start with a skill level that's very adaptive. And if you've got an adaptive player, you can ask them to almost do anything and they can do it. That doesn't mean it's right, but, you know, or it will hold up under pressure, but, you know, you can ask them to do it, but you've got to know what you're doing um, when you're working with a player's career. You can, you know, you can enhance a player very, very quickly. You can kill their career in a, in a heartbeat. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I've become very mindful of. You know, if a player I'm working with is going to make a living, you know, at what level, you know, are we talking about, you know, that they're prepared to get to? Where do they want to be to start with? And then where do they, you know, how are they going to get there? And if they're yeah. entrusting you, that's a massive amount of trust. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, corporation that's giving you a budget of, you know, $3 million a year to, to make the best of their golf facility and turn that 3 million into 4 million or whatever number they want to put on it, you know, that, or somebody who's trying to shave a shot off their handicap or, you know, win a tournament by a fraction of a shot over the next three or four rounds that they play. The you've got you've got to be trusted first, and and I think and you have to earn that trust. So, you know, ultimately, you it doesn't you know, wherever you are, you know, to get the best out of anybody, whether they're going to work for you or whether they're going to pay you to work for them. There's got to be a level of trust that goes beyond, um, you know, just the smile, the handshake and the exchange of some funds. Um, mm. You know, likewise with the relationship that we've got, you know, he, you know, that's you're opening doors for me and I'm throwing doors, you know, at you to, to see if you can push against them. And, you know, there's a huge element of trust because, you know, you know, I'm trusting you with my, you know, with, with what I do with everything that, that goes on, you know, around Andy Gorman golf you know, yes, you'll come back to me, but, uh, you know, you get to a place where you're comfortable at being able to ask the question, knowing that that's going to fit my remit. Mm. And that's, that is the, you know, the building of a relationship that, you know, you, you trust is long-term and, you know, we've known each other a heck of a long time and, and I've trusted each other, you know, a long time before we had a, a direct working relationship. So you can't just go in there and sort of be all things to all men you know, and be there overnight, but, you know, you've, you've got to build up that trust first. So, you know, I like to think that, you know, an old, old friend of mine said, you know, you arrive as a patient and leave as a friend. He had a sort of holistic clinic um, practice. And, you know, I think that's something that I'd like to say that whenever a, a student or client arrives with me, arrive as a client and leave as a friend, albeit maybe not in the first three hours, but <laughs> first you know, three months or so, we're building up something that ultimately is a friendship and a friendship for a long time, you know. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that.
Yeah. Can I now switch in towards the, the tour and what happened this weekend at the Memorial? What kind of caught your eye, Andy? What things stood out to you? Um, I, I think, obviously, the distance conversations carried on, didn't they? You know, Bryson was out there bullying the course for the first round and a half. Um, and then, you know, a, a huge mental error um, on, a, on an extremely difficult golf course. I think what he's going to learn from that is patience. Um, you, you know, you don't, if you're out of position, sometimes you, the wise move is to just play back into position. Um, make the mistake once. Okay. You know, we can do that. Don't make it again. Yeah. But of course, you know, the reason why I made the mistake in the first, you know, look, I was a hot-headed player as well. Um, you know, try and hit the green in two, the old tin-cup approach, isn't it, really? <laughs> it was very tin-cup, did you think? Yeah, I, I do, I do think that, you know, and I think it, play, it makes great TV. It's very car crash potential, but, you know, and, and that will keep us on the edge of our seats. And then we're all screaming at the TV going, I just hit a wedge. Um, <laughs> actually want him to do well and, and ultimately he will learn from that I trust he will you know I mean I, he's too smart not to I think he'll he will seek advice of people who will just say look you know you've got to rein that in you know yeah you're out of position yes you know you can get there but actually it's such a high risk shot there's no point um, he, you know I'm hoping that ultimately he'll have a conversation with his caddy and his caddy will sort of say look I think we both made a mistake there you know um I wasn't forth, forceful enough um, and you didn't listen, um, you know, and if they have that kind of relationship, there's your element of trust in a, in a working relationship. If a player and caddy can have that level of trust, oh my word, you know, they become unbeatable um, with the skill he's yeah. got. Um, I, I hope that, you know, he, he can get to a point where he doesn't just, you know, think that he's better than his caddy. You know, there is an element of teamwork in there. Of course, his caddy's not going to hit the shots, but, you know, the element of teamwork is massive. And I think a caddy has to be respected by a player. I know a lot of caddies. Um, I know a lot of them have been through some rough bags. Um, you know, batten short of being beaten. You, you, know, you know, for me, I think sometimes the caddy gets a rough end of the deal. Um you know, there are some really, really good guys out there. There's a few that have winged it and winged it well for a while, but, you know, that you've, and of course, there are some players that don't want the caddy involvement. Just carry my bag for me and I'll be happy and I'll pay you well. You know, if we win tournaments, you'll get your 10%, etc. And, you know, some caddies might just be the ideal guy on the bag for that, you know, but others maybe not. And, you know, you can't, you can't be going into fights. You know, you've got to have that element of trust that it's not going to have a conflict on the course. You know, because it just, it, you know, you've got to be, it's got to be the smoothest relationship on the golf course because you're, you're the ones out there together. Um, you know, so I think, you know, Bryson's, you know, great. Tony Finau obviously has got, he's figured out how to get the golf ball in the course, you know, and hit it a little bit further as well. And, you know, I was watching a bit of the sky last night and I'm talking about him finding, Finau finding his sweet spot for, you know, hitting the golf ball a certain distance. Um mm -hmm. As interesting as the drivable par four, the short par four on the back nine, I mean, drivable, it's 330-yard carry, I mean, <laughs> hello. Um, but, you know, you know he's, he had a go for the green three times um, with his driver. I think he played it 
one under par for those three attempts and then put it in the water with his second shot on the last day laying up. Um, I don't know whether the conditions were, you know, forcing that layup, but, you know, he couldn't get the wedge on the green. Um, and that's an error of, of, of maybe skill as well as judgment. You know, the, it comes back down to it that, you know, if you're good with your wedges, you, you, you can hit it a long way. You're going to hit a lot more wedge shots than most. And if you can't hit wedge shots as well as you can hit your driver, then you've got a problem. It comes down to the fact that, you know, <laughs> this short game, the shot's inside 100, 125 yards. And these guys obviously are hitting it further. So, you know, pitching wedges, 150, et cetera. You know, you've got to be good with your wedge. And if you're into partial shots, you've got to be good with those as well. Um, not, notwithstanding being good with a putter. And, you know, that's even if you've got to hit a putter from 75 yards which is kind of weird as well, isn't it? Well, I, I don't know who you're talking about there, Andy, but I've, I've seen a certain Phil Mickelson <laughs> having a go at that that 80-yard pot. I, what were your thoughts about well, that? Well, I think Phil's great because he's given us material, although I've probably... Week in, week out, Phil. He's doing a great job. I'm loving it, really. I think, you know, as much as obviously I've spoke, spoken an awful lot about my journey overseas and, you know, um, today, you know, I think Phil... The thing I love about Phil is that he's... You know, has been one of the best players in the world for thirty years, and he's not—he's—he's he's not done it. Um, you could arguably say he's done it his own way. He hasn't really, because he's sought advice as well. He's had numerous coaches, so he's always tried to improve. You know, he's realised he's reached the level, and he's gone and sought advice from elsewhere. He's coaches in the in the business. I think what's you know he's he's not afraid to make a change to try and make it happen, you know, or to force it. He's 50 now, of course. And, you know, the seniors tour, he could just go and tear that up and just go and, you know, just bail the hay. And I mean, I literally could make a harvest every single week, but he's not, he mm. doesn't, you know, he's not going to do that. He's not going to lie down, you know, quickly. He's fitter than he has been probably in the last sort of six or seven years. Um, and stronger, obviously he's hitting the golf ball with good distance. You know, he, he can still play and compete very comfortably on the PGA Tour. I'm not so sure that he's maybe got a little bit uncomfortable with the putter. Um, the, the drill that he's putting into place at the end of the backswing where he stops the backswing and the fact that the putters are on the ground or as near as to on the ground as you can get is a little bit alarming. You know, I've heard the press reports. I heard, you know, what the commentators were saying, talking about the, um, you know, trying to smooth out the transition. Um, you know, yeah, I could talk about what my thoughts and beliefs are as to why that is going on. But, you know, it it would suggest that there are something there that that's maybe heading towards a little sinister. But, you know, really what it is, I'm, you know, I don't know, you know, and wouldn't have, wouldn't have that privilege, you know, at this point in time to be able to, you know, even if I was working with him, you know, wouldn't necessarily share, you know, that that's kind of information. But, you know, from the outside looking in, it would suggest that he's trying to sort of keep things as smooth as he can because he's fighting something that isn't as smooth um, without going over the overboard on that. 
Uh, was that the reason as well for putting the lead tape on the bottom of the putter, on the bottom of the shaft? Because I saw that when it was a close-up image, it looked like it was a bit of a homemade job of wrapping a piece of lead tape around the shaft. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, where do you put the weight, you know, on the club? You know, do, what what do you do with it if, you know, you've? we think that by moving weight around when you're swinging the putter so such a small distance and so um, small movement increments in terms of speed you know weight isn't going to make that much difference ultimately the player's in control but of course it's going to increase weight and if, and if you've got the weight increased then ultimately you know the putter actually sometimes feels like it swings smoother so you know I've done experiments you know numerous times with putting sand down the shaft of a club and make mm. weight of the club you know significantly heavier by doing that um, I actually, you know, at times I've quite liked that and other times, you know, thought, oh, it's just too much weight. So the, you know, that's for me, I'll be honest with you. That was when I was at the back end of my struggles with putting before I found, you know, the ultimately postures, the, the root cause of, of all the problems. And I'll go as far as to say all in capital letters and bold italics and, you know, make yeah, all the, the problems. It starts at posture. Um, your inability to be able to keep moving during the stroke with the body is caused by poor posture, posture that's typically taught. And, you know, whilst that will continue to go on with Phil, um, you know, without that changing anytime soon, you know, he ultimately the control of the club head, you know, at the level that he wants to do it, he's always going to be brought into question. And the problem that we've got, you know, I've, I've seen these strokes gain stats is you know, very impressive for this week. Um, you know, in comparison to where he's been, you know, when you when you're ranking yourself down at 150 for strokes game putting, and the rest of your game isn't as bad because you can see what it's doing, you know, relatively because you know he's still putting some scores in. Mm. Um, you know, if he doesn't improve his strokes game stats, then you know his PGA Tour career will will end fairly abruptly, and I wouldn't really want to see that. To be honest with you, I think Phil's infectious and you know great character. Um, you know, I've had very limited dealings with him. I've, you know, have had the opportunity to sort of have a very close observations is probably the best way to put it. You know, a little, little bit of chat, banter. And, you know, he had a little peek at the camera shots that I'd, I'd taken, you know, before we had phones that were doing what we could do. You know, I've got my Casio and hit mm -hmm. green, you know, on the back of the Casio was amazed at what I pictured, you know, sort of filmed of him. Um, you know, I was happy that I'd done so and allowed him to view it. And, you know, no more happy than I was, you know, for allow him allowing me to film him. But, um, yeah, I mean, just what he can do with a wedge, you know, you'd hope we could translate that into into putting, you know, and, and reach the top of that part of his game again. But, you know, if that's the area of the game that's, that's weak at this area, he's going to find a way to try and make it work, you know. Why is that, Andy, you think? Have you seen that with players where they've had an absolute immaculate kind of 100 yards and in approach, but when they go onto the putting surface, there's just a little bit of doubt there. Have you seen that in players? I see it a lot. Um, and I see it because ultimately, you know, albeit we'll have movement patterns are fairly, you know, I can look at a player's putting stroke and see what they do during the swing. Uh, even though I've never seen the swing of golf club um, before, I can point out characteristics, shot types and, and swing patterns and they go like how can you see that from that putting stroke well 
you know, movement patterns that don't fall, for, you know, the oak doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, it's at three mile an hour, 30 mile an hour, 103 mile an hour. It doesn't make any difference. You know, there's a generalized movement pattern. That said, um, I'd be inclined to say that maybe um, there's an element of natural patterns tend to follow, um, you, you know, and it, 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 there's, there's no hard and fast rule on it because there are players that, you know, maybe will aim to hit a cut shot, um, you know, off the tee and their approach shots or whatever, and then they'll be in an effect swinging a little bit into out with the putter and, and you know, so there, there'll be some changes, but you generally see certain characteristics and for a player, when they then go from a, an upright postural position, which allows them to keep moving, you know, to a bent over position, which restricts their movements, then go mm -hmm. from a, um, a swing that rotates around the spine to one that's getting where the chest is locked in front of it. And, um, you know, the chest is always in front of the spine and just rotating around it. It's just that the chest is always facing the ball, you know, in putting, you know, but it shouldn't, it should move. It should, you know, it's when you have that lack of movement that you end up with the wrists breaking down because ultimately the putter's the only part of the swing that's moving at three mile an hour. You know, I'm talking about a 10 foot putt speed roughly, you know, as a rough average. So, you know, if, if the chest doesn't move, then, you know, the hands will slow down. It's it's just one of those things. So for me, you know, yes, I see it an awful lot. You know, and likewise, I'll see golfers who can putt well, and you know, they're they're shocking with their short game because they figured out a way to to do the job with the putter and haven't translated what they've learned or their capability of being able to translate it. You know, is challenged uh, moving into the wedge shots. So. Um, yeah, you know, I'm frustrated for the player that I see like that because invariably it's because they're naive of the rather than sort of ignorant towards it. It's not they just haven't learned that there is a better alternative to getting the job done. And, you know, that element of naive isn't excused. You know, um, you can't say that you didn't know to the police officer that pulled you over for driving a 70 and a 30. I didn't realize it was a 30 because, you know, Mm -hmm. You are guilty of your crime, but um, ultimately, you know, that element of naivety, you know, is excused to a degree in golf, but really isn't if you, you know, recognize that it's a movement. Um, you know, the golf swing, the putting stroke is no less subject to the laws of physics in movement than it is at 100 mile an hour when you're swinging the driver. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's for a player to seek that knowledge and advice you know and and but where do you go you know and that's the challenge is where do you go to get the advice of 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 that you know i've i've watched some videos this morning of you know some new putting material that's out there which isn't new of course but it's come from a, a new a new source or you know guys are out there doing a job and doing it very well but are talking about the same poor fundamentals for putting and, you know, and it's now going to be another audience of, you know, potentially a million people out there going to do the same thing. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, folk are very receptive to, you know, popular opinions rather than, you know, sort of something that is actually grounded and rooted in the laws of physics without it being scientific. Um, 
based around anatomical principles without being physiological. It creates an instinctive environment to put in, you know, and, you know, good, get good, good posture with the right length club. You know, you allow that instinctive, creative capability to come out that good players have because good players are instinctive and creative. You don't become a good player without that. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean the analytical golfer can't be good um, because Nick Faldo, Jack Nicholas, Ben Hogan, you know, Tiger Woods were very analytical golfers. And, you know, Tiger obviously still is, but, you know, the formers were, you know, were the most analytical golfers you'll ever come across. Also mm. extremely practical of being able to get the club to hit the ball and do what they wanted it to do to make the shot happen that they've just seen. So, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot, a lot of reasonings behind it, but you can't become a totally mechanical and not have some creativity and flair around, you know, the things that you do, whether it's the short shots around the greens or the, you know, the putts on the green itself. Amazing. Absolutely amazing insight, Andy. Thank you for that. And I just think the more we, we kind of dig deep into the PJ Tour and the stats and everything that's going on at the moment, I just think hopefully it gives the, the audience that little bit of a understanding why players do things and what real like the tour life is, is all about because you've been um, a living example of, of what it's like on tour and, and how these players are thinking, responding and playing certain shots. I will say this and, and th you know, thanks Gareth for, for that. Um, but I will say this, uh, you know, and, we'll draw a close to the podcast, you know, pretty much on this line is that the new world number one, John Rahm, uh, who has had an exceptional career so far, um, you know, and, and thoroughly deserved his win uh, this weekend. Uh, he's using a 37 inch putter. And mm -hmm. I would say he's, you know, posturing very well to what would perceive to be a, ridiculously long club um, and he's not a short fella, but that's fine because, you know, if I needed big shoes, I would, if, if I had big feet, I would buy big shoes. It's as simple as that. So he's got a club that's 37 inches long. He is using it extremely well. Um, yes, he can hit the golf ball a long way and he's got all the other data for falling in the right place as well. But, um, you know, he's, uh, he, he is an example of somebody who's embraced um, a longer club in recent years and has improved his putting stats accordingly. So, you know, it can be done. The best players in the world, if they they embrace the, te the technology that's out there, the data that comes back and, um, you know, the information that's available to them, then, you know, then they're going to improve and, you know, have our recreational golfers and our listeners, you know, can do just the same. So um, on that, Gareth, extremely comfortable with the amazing hour that we've had i can't believe yeah. you know, we've been talking away for an hour but um it, it's been a fantastic opportunity to be able to share part of my life um with you and uh, with you as the audience um so do thank you for listening and we will have some more tour talk uh, next week we'll have some more data and some more reasons why you know it's important for you to be well fitted and well connected to your short clubs and uh, I'm looking forward to spending that time with you. So have a great week, everyone. Um, do appreciate you listening. Thanks Gareth for firing those questions across and keeping me on my toes um, for, for this hour and uh, looking forward to spending the next week, bringing further information for you to share next week. So I'm looking forward to that.
Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye for now.